Thomas, Thomas, wake up. The first thing he does upon waking is to search his nightshirt, his bedding for soiling. He does so quickly, mechanically, still more than half asleep, runs a palm over his skin, feeling for the telltale grit of soot. Only then does he wonder what time it is and who it is that has woken him. It is Charlie, of course. His face keeps changing in the light of the candle he is holding. One moment it is steady, carved into planes of white and shadow. Then it buckles, eyes, nose, lips go roaming, rearrange themselves, and the light of the flame leaps into his reddish hair. Charlie, what time? Late, well, early. I heard a boy say it was two, though the devil knows how he'd know. Charlie leans down to whisper. The candle swoops down with him, chasing shadows across the cot. It's Julius. He says everyone is to assemble in the toilets now. There is movement all around the dormitory. Pale figures stretching, rising, whispering in groups. Haste wrestles with reluctance. There are only a handful of candles, moonlight on the snow outside the windows, their panes milky with its ghostly glow. Soon the boys move in procession, out the twin doors. Nobody wants to be first, or last. Not Charlie, not Thomas, not even the handful of boys who hold special favor. Best to be lost in the crowd. The bathroom tiles are cold under their feet. It's a large room flanked by sinks, square white porcelain sinks. Their surfaces crisscrossed by a spider's web of fissures, too fine to be traced by your fingers and as though drawn with a fine pencil. Toilet stalls line the far end. Beyond them, in a long, narrow annex, hulks a row of bathtubs, square and tiled with pale green tiles. The bathroom floor slopes, very slightly so, towards the middle. It's something you learn when you spill water there. It forms rivulets, heads for the low ground. At the lowest point, the room's center, there is a drain, not large, scum-covered, its square metal grill half-clogged with hair and lint. This is where he has placed the chair. Julius. The boys of the lower school call him Kaiser, pronouncing the C as a K, like the Latin teacher taught them. Kaiser. It means emperor-designate, the one who will rule next. He alone is dressed in all the room, wears pressed trousers, his half-boots polished to a shine. A waistcoat, but no jacket, to draw attention to the shirt. The sleeves so lily-white it startles the eye. When he moves his arms, the starched linen makes a sound, something between a rustle and a sort of clapping, depending on how quickly he moves. You can even hear how clean it is. And, by extension, he. No evil has touched him. Julius is the closest the school has to a saint. He places both hands on the back of the chair and watches the ripple of fear spread through the boys. Thomas feels it too. It's not a matter of courage, he thinks, but a physical force, like feeling the wind on your face on a stormy day. You cannot opt out. We shall have a lottery, says Julius, not loudly, dispensing with a greeting, and one of his cronies, 
eighteen and bulky in the shoulders, steps forward with pencil stubs, a stack of paper squares, and a large gunny sack. The type you might use to carry potatoes in, to fashion a scarecrow's face. The kind you slip over someone's head when you lead them to their hanging. But that's just being fanciful, Thomas tells himself, as he accepts a piece of paper and a pencil and marks down his name. Thomas Argyle. He omits his title. The papers go back in the sack. Thomas does not know how Julius cheats, but cheat he must. Perhaps he has marked the papers somehow, or perhaps he simply pretends to read off the name he has picked out of the sack and substitutes it for one of his choice. The only person to vouch for the proceedings is that same loyal crony who passed out the papers. Julius has turned up his shirt sleeve to rummage in the sack, as though he were digging for sin at the bottom of a murky pond. As though it were important not to get soiled.